You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our worship. We're going through the Gospel of John. Today we pick up in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you um, or on your app, uh, let's follow along. We're starting in chapter 6 in verse 47. We'll read through the rest of the chapter starting in verse 47. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on the bread, this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed, walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Well, the message of Christianity, the message of the Bible, is, is an amazing message. It is one that goes like this, most clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says this, the writers of scriptures repeat this often, and the sole difference between those who have eternal life and those who have eternal condemnation is belief in Jesus. That's the clearest message of the scripture. Being good doesn't earn us salvation because there's no one who's truly, perfectly good. 
And that's why the message of Christianity is so good, so freeing, so inviting, so wonderful, because it tells us that salvation is by grace. It is lovingly offered. We are lovingly invited into the work of Christ and his rescue. It comes as a gift. And the only thing that we must do, the only work we must do, is to believe in Jesus. Believe in him and you will be saved. That's the message of the Bible. And a message like this undoubtedly draws a crowd. Believe in this man, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Your sins forgiven. You will come into the fullness of God's joy. You will not die. Even if you die physically, you will live forever. You will be given a new body, a glorified body, when Christ returns. And this draws a crowd. Many come. Many come around to figure out who this, who this Jesus is and what he is teaching about. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is gaining a ton of attention. The crowds are following him as a result of his message of salvation, but also as a result of his miraculous signs and wonders that he's performing throughout the cities. And yet something happens in this passage that is truly astonishing. Jesus says, believe in me and you will be saved. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. And everyone comes. And he begins to then explain what it means to really believe. And we're told that everyone except the 12 walk away. This message, so compelling, so wonderful, so invitational, so freeing, that people want to hear about it. And then when he is clear about what it means to follow him, they walk away. Say, we don't want this. And I don't say this really often enough, but just think of it like this. If you believe in the promise that is offered in our scripture today, you will be rescued from the consequences of sin. You will be filled with the fullness of God, which leads to eternal life, and you will find the eternal peace of God forever. If you believe what he says today. Wow. You came on a good Sunday. Who else can offer that? If you believe this, you will have eternal life. This is the invitation of Christ to us all. Whether we are coming in as ones questioning what it means to know and follow Jesus, and those who are searching or skeptical, those who have been Christians for decades. This is the invitation for us to believe and to continue in belief. But what does it really mean to believe? Because that's the, that's the challenge here, and that's what really disturbs so many people, is when we really get into, and this is what it really means to believe in Jesus. And you and I don't get to decide the terms of our belief. Believing in Jesus must be done on, on his terms, according to his truth, according to, to his reality. And that's what is so offensive to so many people, is that he says, to believe is to, to believe on my terms, this encounter between Jesus and the crowd shows us that the, the characteristics of true belief in him. True belief is the instrument of our salvation. His terms are laid out in the form of this metaphor. The metaphor that Jesus is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. So we have to do some work here. Because it's challenging. As we see, it's challenging to the crowds. He says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
This is, this is, we got to do some work then to, to work through this metaphor to figure out what is Jesus really communicating about the nature and characteristic of true belief because we don't want to be like those who walked away in confusion. We want to be those who believe, even in the midst of our confusion, we want to believe in him. And so through this metaphor, we will see that true belief is three things. It's confessing that Jesus was given for us, inviting Jesus to dwell in us, and depending on Jesus to sustain us. Let's look at these. True belief is confessing that Jesus was given for us. So in our first few verses, we see this. Jesus gets heavy into this metaphor, and he draws a comparison to what he offers, to what was offered to the Jewish ancestors years ago as they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and wandered into, in the desert, in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. They were dying of starvation. They cried out to God for help. They said, we're starving, we're hungry, we need food. And so he sent bread from heaven. He sent manna from heaven to sustain them. And they ate of it and they, and they lived. Without food, they would die. And so God caused the heavens to rain food for them. They ate and they lived. The next day they ate again and they lived. The day after that, they ate again and they lived. They were sustained by the food that God provided for them. And Jesus, he draws a comparison between what happened then and what's happening with him now. As the bread of life sustains natural life, he is the bread of life, now grants eternal life for all who believe. And Jesus draws a, an obvious point. He makes an obvious point. All those people who ate the bread in the desert died. They eventually died, but there's a different result with Jesus. All men and women die, but when we believe in Jesus, even though we one day die naturally, we can receive spiritual life. We are raised to new life forever with him in a new glorified body. So even though we die, we will live. And here's where the, he presses in to what it really means to believe in him with the metaphor. Look again at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews don't understand. What are you talking about, Jesus? What's happening here? So let's consider this verse as we keep it up for just a moment and consider this verse and what it means so that we don't make the same mistake. God gives bread for, from heaven. The bread from heaven gives life. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice for the life of those who believe in him. And so that's the rationale that Jesus is communicating here. To believe, is, in a sense, is to 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 believe in the sacrifice that Jesus gives for us. Jesus has already been presented as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Jews would have understood that. The Lamb of God was the, the sacrifice that God provided to cover over the guilt of his people for all their sins. The Lamb of God was slain for the sins of God's people. And the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves. What a ridiculous, what a ridiculous concept to think about, that he is that sacrifice, that he is the one that God provides for, for life, just like our fathers received in the desert. 
And so Jesus ups the ante. He doesn't say, okay, I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. Let, me. let me walk it back. He says, not only do you have to eat my flesh, you have to drink my blood. <laughs> so he takes the sacrificial language even further when they are not getting the connection. This is now even more offensive for what it signifies. You look through all the scripture, the, the primary symbolic meaning and reference to blood in the Bible is not a reference to life. It is actually in reference to violent death. Blood is, is often mostly referenced in a way of talking about violent death and sacrifice for others. And the conclusion of these first few verses is obvious in referencing his own blood. Jesus is illustrating what it means, by, by what means our eternal life will be secured. Our eternal life, our salvation is secured, not by our means of our character or our obedience in the law, but by him offering himself for the life of others. It comes through his sacrificial death through the shedding of his blood, through the death of his body on the cross. And this sacrificial reference is twofold. It is lovingly given and it is in our place. That's how we understand the sacrifice that Christ offers. It is lovingly given. He, he's not obligated to give it. Jesus gives himself freely. He's not compelled to give himself. He wasn't forced to do it. He, rather, he gives himself to us in a willing choice. He tells us, no one takes my life from me, but I give it willingly. God would have been completely, what this means is, is that God would have completely been just and righteous to look at the condition of our sin from heaven and do absolutely nothing in response. He would have been completely righteous, completely, completely good, completely true to himself to leave us as we were in our state of rebellion. But he doesn't. This is the merciful part. This is the loving part. This is the, the gracious reality of this sacrifice that is given. He doesn't remain silent. He makes provision for our sin through his own life, his death, his resurrection. He gives himself willingly, he, and therefore he gives himself graciously. He gives himself lovingly. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave, he pours out his life. Not just freely given, but in our place. As a substitute, instead of. Whatever synonym, I mean, pick up, bring out your thesaurus and figure it out. Whatever you want to say, it's instead of us. Because of our sin, he takes our place. Jesus came into the world saying in so many different ways, my life for yours. My death instead of your death. My alienation instead of your alienation. My rejection, your acceptance. Jesus offers himself in our place, my life for yours. He doesn't come into the world saying your life for mine. He makes it so abundantly clear that when he came, he did not come to be served, but to serve, to offer his life as a ransom for many. The whole purpose of his coming was to give his life. Like God gave bread from heaven. 
You see, our, our main problem in this life is, is not other people. Our, our main problem is it's not how other people treat us or the circumstances that come our way from the outside. Our main problem in life is us. And do you realize the Bible never tells us, just try your best. Just try your best. The biblical requirement is not try your best or be well-intended or even be nice. The biblical requirement is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And the Bible tells us that, that all sin is a personal rebellion against a holy God. And animal sacrifices were a provision from God because of his grace and love to his people where this, this animal would take on themselves the, the guilt of God's people. And yet these sacrifices, as we are told in Scripture, are never meant to fully wipe the slate clean. It never could. For that, God promised that he would send his son to die in our place. He would send Jesus to die in our place, taking our punishment that we deserve. And so Jesus says, my life for yours. So what does it really mean in this sense, as Jesus is working through this metaphor, to truly believe in him? True belief strips a person of all sense of self-congratulations, of all permission to say, look at the good that I have done. True belief is confessing that Jesus lovingly paid the penalty that I deserve. He gave himself for me, died for me in my place, meaning I should have died and, and God would have been just to condemn me in my sin, but instead he offered himself for me. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And those who desire to approach him cannot approach him as if we're doing him a favor by doing that. And in a world of self-promotion, in a world of self-worship, a message like this is so offensive to a people who have spent their life working their way to God through their righteousness, telling them that, that Jesus had to be given to die for them because they couldn't do it themselves is offensive, it's rude, but it's true. The message is, is clear, but it's difficult that those who reject this foundational truth cannot be saved. Those who reject this foundational truth that Jesus had to die for us in our place cannot be saved. No matter how nice they are or how well they behave, being good is never good enough. We must know and believe something, primarily that Jesus is given as a sacrifice and a substitute for our guilt and for our sin. He goes further into this metaphor to show that just, just agreement on this is never enough. But we must believe that something has to happen in, in us, that Christ must dwell in us. So true belief is inviting Jesus to dwell in us. Now, for centuries, Christians have talked about belief and used this language about believing in Jesus is inviting Christ into your heart. Are you familiar with that language? Now, believe what you want about that terminology, reject it if you want, that's okay. But the concept is biblical. The concept is biblical, and Jesus shows us in this passage, what does it mean to really, to invite Jesus in your heart? What is someone doing, or supposed to be doing, or meant to do when they are inviting Jesus into their heart? 
Let's look at verse 56 to 57 again. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the loving Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So this is a kind of believing in Christ, believing on Christ, feasting on Christ, feeding on him, to use this metaphor, where a true believer continues to identify with Christ in such a way that there's this whole life transformation that happens. It is this whole life offering on the, on the altar of God. It is a whole giving of your life, not just compartments of your life or areas of your life. It is allowing God to have full reign of your whole being. A phrase that I don't hear so much today, but something I love about you know, my parents' generation and even beyond. They talk so much about accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. They still say that in the South, probably. <laughs> but, you know, but we really need to recapture that, that phraseology. It's, it's, it's right, it's biblical, that he's our Savior. He died for me, but he's also my Lord. My, I, I see nothing in my life apart from his reign in my life. I see nothing of my life apart from his rule in my life. True belief is a way of saying to Christ, move into my life in every way. Transform me, sustain me, guide me, direct me. You see, Jesus is not interested in being a dinner guest for these, the crowds. So they came to him first because he had food to give and they were hungry. And he, in so many ways, is telling them, I'm not interested. My agenda is not to just come to the party of your life to come to a dinner that you host and to provide the food and to bless you. My agenda is to move into your house and start arranging the furniture. My agenda is not to be a temporary roommate where we kind of hang out and you learn from me for a while and then I go about my way. I am supposed to move into this, this shanty of a life of yours and make it into a castle that I'm going to live in forever. And in order to do that, he has to, he has to change everything. He has to rearrange our, our life, our inner life, our passions, our beliefs, our loves. Our, he has to guide everything. Everything must con, come under his reign and rule. You know, when we treat Jesus like a, like a dinner guest, it's, we, we might be prone to treat him the way we treat others like a dinner guest. What happens when you have friends that come over? You start cleaning the house. Let's get it all clean. Let's put a nice dish out. Let's put the Bible on the end table. That's what I know. I was like, that Bible's not there all the time. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> it's always there when I come over, though. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to tidy up. We're going to make it look nice. We put on some essential oils, right? We just, everything's really nice. But he's not interested in just being a guest. He's not interested in a temporary move-in. He has one agenda. And that is to dwell within you and to transform you from the inside out. Unless we have voluntarily given Jesus full reign over every corner of our lives, we have yet to demonstrate true belief. You may have noticed this small but significant detail in Jesus' words. He's been using the word eat several times. It's all about eating, right? Eating is flesh. Eat, eat, eat. Eat my flesh, eat my flesh. And then in verse 56, he changes the word from eat to feed. 
Eat here is a word commonly used when eating common foods like supper and meat and bread. But feed here is a word exclusively used when eating difficult to digest foods like nuts and almonds and food that require a lot of crunching and munching. And here is what this means. I'm actually not entirely sure. I don't really know the significance of that. But it may be something, okay? I could come up with something, but think about it. Is there something there? I'll, I'll let you decide. But he's saying there's, there's dynamics here about, about taking Jesus, not just chewing casually, really digging in, really crunching, breaking that shell of that nut, digesting it. I mean, really work, feeding on it. Whatever we take from it, Jesus is wanting to get this point across. If the life of Jesus is not reigning and ruling in you, then there's no life in you at all. See, these are the hard words that Jesus is saying, and that's why people are walking away. Because they hear that to believe in Jesus will give them eternal life, and they're like, that sounds awesome. And then he says, and this is what it means to really believe, and they're like, forget that. Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says something strikingly similar. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A lot of similarities there, right? What does it mean to die? What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It means to, it means to die to the idea that we belong to ourselves and we get to do what we want. Because Jesus paid the penalty of that kind of rebellion on the cross and he raised to new life and we are now hidden in him and he is in us. And the life that we now live is lived by faith in Jesus who lives in us, who gave himself for us, my savior and my Lord. For the life that I now live is not lived through by my desires and my motivations. It's not my agenda. You see, what it means is I have put to death the notion that I bring my ideas to God. He brings his ideas to me. And we just kind of debate them back and forth and figure out good sides of both. No, it means that when God speaks, the conversation is over. And we say, my life is in your hands. My life is yours. He says, unless you do this, you have no part in me. And it sounds so familiar to this metaphor of Jesus that he is giving, doesn't it, that Paul is saying. And Paul was able to understand this metaphor. To believe in Jesus is to see no identity of our own apart from the purpose of Christ in us. True belief is, is, to, is created in this co-indwelling. And this is a beautiful picture here that he dwells in us, but we also dwell in him. We dwell in Christ. He dwells in us. Is there any, any area of your life where you have yet to relinquish it to Christ in true belief? It's possible that this resistance is, is anchored in a desire to control your autonomy, to have a way with your own life the way that you want. And it is rebellion against God. It is a way of saying, I think I can survive without having to eat and trying to figure that out. 
And yet Jesus invites us to relinquish it to him, to give our life to him. Not in a tyrannical way. He does not come in a tyrannical way. Instead, he invites us to give our lives to him because his agenda is is to give us the absolute best, and that is himself. Do you see this? He comes lovingly, graciously, mercifully, offering his own life for us, saying, my life for yours. I don't come as as a landlord demanding rent. I don't come as a tyrant demanding your life in, in servitude. I come as a loving father inviting you to walk in the way that truly will give you life, and you will find it nowhere else. True belief is inviting him to dwell in us, to shape our whole lives around that reality. True belief, finally, is depending on Jesus to sustain us. Now here, at the, at the, we come to the end of the discourse between Jesus and the crowds, and he moves to this now discourse with the disciples. You see, he turns to his disciples, the 12 that are remaining, and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? The things that I have just said to, to the crowds were too much for them to handle, and they left. Are you going to leave as well? A life following Jesus will be at times confusing. It will be challenging. It will be discouraging. It will be depressing. It will be lonely. And even feel like the wrong path to take. I've been tempted to leave at times myself. Have you? Have you been tempted to think that maybe this, hasn't, this isn't the real way? Maybe it's just a, a figment of your imagination. Maybe you got it wrong. Maybe the way of Christ is not really the real way. Have you been tempted to, to lessen your embrace of Christ and to ease up maybe on your allegiance to Jesus just to kind of try some other things out? There's even a time where I told God that I hated him for the pain that I was experiencing as a result of following him. Have you ever been there? The longer we live, the more people we will see depart from Jesus and walk away from him in order to follow a path of lesser resistance, greater convenience, or simply something just more socially digestible. It's not very socially, see that metaphor, digestible? It's not, it's not convenient to follow Jesus. It's, it, it's not palatable. It's, it's not popular. For everyone who believes, for everyone who believes in Jesus, there will come a time and possibly many times in your life where you will need to articulate a response to this question that Jesus is asking. Do you want to go as well? And how will you articulate that? We need to have an answer. When those times become tough, we need to do it. What is keeping you from leaving Jesus? Really, what is it? Do you know what it is? We need to be able to articulate in clear terms what is keeping us in relationship with Jesus. What it is that keeps you from saying, enough is enough, I'm going to try something else for a change. What is keeping you from giving into your doubts, to give into your confusions about the ways of God? And Jesus ends with the question, do you want to go as well? There is a way to ask this question in a rhetorical sense, like, gosh, a lot of people have left. I wonder if you guys are going to leave too. But this is not a rhetorical question. That people leave and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, answer me right now. Why are you staying? Articulate a response 
for why you are still with me, even when I am leading you into difficulty. Peter says, where else are we going to go? You hold the keys to eternal life. Now, the first half without the second is a little disheartening, I think. You know, guys, you you finally get up the courage to ask that girl to marry you. And she says, well, there honestly isn't anyone else. (laughs) And so I figured I'd give it a shot. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Let's go for it. Let's take the... Not a great vote of confidence, right? I actually think Peter's response is really full of belief. And Jesus actually affirms it to be so, and really because of the second part of the statement that explains the first part. However, however difficult, however wearisome of life is when we follow Jesus, and however tiring it might become, Jesus is the only place we will find life. Here's what I like that Peter is doing. He is not denying the reality of difficulty in following Jesus. But he understands, in even a flawed sense, in a flawed way, his options are not just limited. Life is exclusively found in Jesus. The life that you and I were created for is found exclusively in Jesus. If you look somewhere else, you will not find it. If you wander from Jesus, you will only get further away from salvation. There's a kind of consumption of Christ that leads to spiritual life in a similar way that consuming food leads to natural life and physical life. And Peter rightfully makes this connection that if I want to live, I have to be with you. I have to walk with you. I have to believe in you. I have to trust in you. I have to give my life to you. I have to let you reign in my life in all ways. And he doesn't have that all figured out. He's stumbling through it. We know that. He, he falls through many pitfalls and rebellion and denial. He, it's, it's, it's a falling forward kind of life for Peter as it is for us as well. Even our ability to believe in Jesus is anchored in the faithfulness of Jesus to us. He's the one that chooses us before we choose him. He is the one that before we feed on him, he feeds us with his word. Before we take our first step of faith, he takes his first step towards us in grace. He tells us before we loved him, he loved us. You see, true belief is not even putting all of our confidence in our ability to believe. I gotta believe, I gotta believe, I gotta believe because that's where my salvation comes from. I got to believe. Jesus even tells us that's not even where salvation comes from. Salvation comes from the faithfulness of Christ. It comes from his abilities to sustain us, to feed us, to rescue us, and to see his plans through. It's possible that we focus so much on our work of believing that we miss the whole point of Jesus' metaphor completely, which is this. He gives himself without limit for our guilt, for our sin, for our weakness, for our joy, all the ways, all the way to the end, all the way to the end. And even then at the end, he says, even then at the last day, I will raise you up to new life where my fullness will be in you and your joy will be complete. Jesus is reminding us that even belief is a belief in his faithfulness to us and not in our faithfulness to him. Why would you walk away from that? 
Why would you walk away from him? Where else will you go? There is only one who has given his life for you. Only one. Take him. Believe in him. Trust him. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.